Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew 16. Pick up where we left off last time, Matthew 16, as we work our way through this uh, gospel, this first gospel. We'll look this morning at verses 13 to 16. It's actually part of a little longer uh, section on down to verse uh, 20, but uh, too much to handle this morning with the Lord's Supper and all. So Matthew 16, verse 13 to 16 this morning. In our text this morning, Jesus asked the most important question we could ever be asked. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am, Jesus says. For centuries, that question has been the watershed between Christians and unbelievers. Driven by their answer to this question, many have spent their lives seeking to make that truth known. And many others, as a result of their answer, have lost their lives. Indeed, our common answer to this question is the confession which binds us together as a church body. It's no exaggeration to say that our eternal welfare and most everything about our life hangs on the answer to Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? Let me read the text. Verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We'll stop there. It's a very brief text, but teaches us two very important things. The first is this. There's some surprise you when I say this, so just hang with me here. Believing in Jesus is not enough. <clears throat> Believing in Jesus is not enough. In a world where everyone seems to think we can earn God's favor, we who know the gospel rightfully, rightly emphasize that we're saved by faith, by simply believing, not by our works, that we earn something before God. But even among so-called Christians, that emphasis on simply believing has been so distorted that we must say that believing in Jesus is not enough. I encountered a troubling Example of this many, many years ago before I even moved here. At a meeting of church elders, we were meeting to examine the views of a man who sought to uh, be ordained as a minister. And that gets to be a rather tedious task, and it's uh, asking a lot of questions and a lot of hard questions. And one person, one of the elders there, the committee doing this, raised the question of the propriety of our whole task, saying, if he believes in Jesus, let him preach. Now, I don't question that brother's sincerity, but I would ask him, what Jesus do you mean? And what exactly do you believe about that Jesus? That's the point of this first part of our text. Jesus asked the general question, who do people say that I am? And in reply, he received many views representing those who believe in Jesus, 
representing the answer of those who believe in Jesus, but were wrong. Some said, well, he was John the Baptist, raised from the dead. Herod Antipas was the first one to have that. He did not believe in Jesus. Nonetheless, it was a pretty impressive point of view, if you think about it. It understood that Jesus announced the coming of the kingdom of heaven, and it acknowledged that Jesus had supernatural powers. He rose from the dead. It was not a bad confession concerning who Jesus is. It was just wrong. So believing in Jesus, uh, such a Jesus as that, John the Baptist raised from the dead, was not good enough. Others said he was Elijah. This view was based on the Bible. At the end of the Old Testament, the very last chapter of the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, we read, quote, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And a study of Matthew William Barclay points out that, quote, to this day, the Jews expect the return of Elijah before the coming of the Messiah. And to this day, they leave a chair vacant for Elijah when they celebrate the Passover. For when Elijah comes, the Messiah will not be far away. So those people look to Jesus as the herald of the Messiah and the forerunner of the direct intervention of God. Now, that's a rather exalted view of Jesus. But it was wrong. So again, just believing in some Jesus was not enough. Still others said Jesus was Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. According to an extra-biblical book, which is attributed to Ezra, God had promised, quote, I will send you help, my servants Isaiah and Jeremiah. Again, William Barclay gives us some background on this view. He says, Jeremiah had a curious place in the expectations of the people of Israel. It was believed that before the people went into exile, Jeremiah had taken the ark and the altar of incense out of the temple and hidden them away in a lonely cave on Mount Nebo. And that before the coming of the Messiah, he would return and produce them and the glory of God would come to the people again. That's a pretty exalted view of the ministry of this man, Jesus, a great prophet returned from the dead, bringing help in time of trouble, announcing the coming and the restoration of the nation and the coming of God's great salvation. Not a bad view, just wrong. Believing in that Jesus was not enough either. Now, the disciples never went into the views of the people that hated Jesus, the people who thought he was in cahoots with the devil. They only mentioned those who believed in Jesus in some fashion, who recognized his miraculous power, who, who looked expectantly for him, uh, to, to, for a word of prophecy from God from him, and who expected him to announce the coming of God's kingdom. They only were talking about those people. But all these views were insufficient. They were sincere, lofty, Bible-based, but wrong. And believing in any such Jesus is not enough. The whole world in which we live is filled with widely divergent views of Jesus. He has been twisted and distorted by every kind of cult. 
He has been reinvented to fit every political and social point of view in the world. He has been stretched and diced and melted down and cast in every new theological mold that comes down the pike in the church. So much so that much of what we hear of Jesus in today's world has nothing to do with, the, with who he actually is. Just blithely saying, I believe in Jesus, is not enough. So Jesus goes on in our text to ask his disciples a second question. Who do you say that I am? To which Peter replies with the correct answer. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Which brings us to our second point. Only Jesus can save the world. Only Jesus can save the world. You may notice that this text never uses the word save the world. It's, but it's all about messianic expectations. And I would argue that the modern way we talk about messianic expectations is heard in people's plan to save the world. In the College Dictionary, I found this definition of messianic. Quote, relating to the belief that someone will be born who will change the world. Relating to the belief that there will be a complete change of the social order. A Messiah is one who will ring and bring universal peace and brotherhood. Oh, we don't use the word Messiah very much in our culture, but we never stop talking about our vision for changing the world and for peace and brotherhood and for change of the whole social order. Our text just makes clear that, that those things are all about a Messiah. This was Peter's answer to Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? Peter said two things, you are the Christ and you are the son of the living God. Let's talk about each of those. Let's talk about the Christ. What was Peter saying when he said you are the Christ? We tend to think, nobody would admit this, but we tend to think of Christ uh, as if that were Jesus' last name. Jesus Christ. It's not. Christ coming from the Greek word Christos, actually means anointed one. And interestingly, the word Messiah, coming from the Hebrew word Mashiach, also means anointed one. In other words, Christ, which we find in the New Testament, which comes, was written in Greek, largely, and Messiah, which we find in the Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew, both mean the same thing, anointed one. That's what Messiah means. That's what Christ means. The anointed. So in the Bible, in Jewish life, there was anointing. Well, what was that anointing and what did it mean? Anointing involved the pouring of, or rubbing of oil on a person. And that anointing, anointing was a sign of being chosen and set apart by God for some special task or some special role of leadership. Anointing was a physical act representing being set apart by God's Holy Spirit who gave power and guidance to that anointed person for that person's particular task. So who was anointed? We go through the Old Testament. Who was anointed? Well, actually, there are three categories of folks that were anointed. Prophets were anointed. Not always do we find that happening, but we have some examples of it. 
And, and it makes sense for prophets were set apart for the ministry of proclaiming God's word to God's people. The second category was priests. Priests were always anointed. Special oil was uh, bexed up for the anointing of the priests. For the priests were the ones who ministered in the, in the temple, the tabernacle first, and then the temple, representing God to his people and representing the people to the Lord. And the third category was Israel's kings were anointed. Kings were not chosen by a popular vote like we choose leaders. The anointing was a visible expression of God's choice. The kings were set apart to rule on behalf of God, the ultimate king. Now, all these were forerunners of the Messiah who would come. So in his confession, Peter said to Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the anointed one. He's the fulfillment of all of those offices. He's the perfect prophet, who, who, who shows us the Father. He's the perfect high priest who offers one sacrifice for all of our sins and now intercedes for us. And he's the perfect king, the son of David, whom God has given, to whom God has given his kingdom. No one else has ever hold, held all three of those offices, prophet, priest, and king. Only Jesus, God's anointed one, who came to save the world. But that's not all Peter said. Peter went on to say that Jesus was not just the Christ, but the son of the living God. Now that statement alone would not prove Jesus' deity, for there were times when others were called sons of God. Adam was called a son of God. Israel corporately was called God's son sometimes. Angels of heaven, angels of heaven were called the sons of God sometimes. But here Peter confesses Jesus' Sonship in contrast with the most exalted people, John the Baptist and, and uh, Elijah and Jeremiah and the prophets. As Calvin said, although it may be that Peter did not grasp distinctly how Christ was begotten of God, yet he believed him to be so excellent as to originate from God, not like the rest of men, but as living and true Godhead clothed in flesh. Plus, this statement does not stand alone. This is not the only time we hear that Jesus is the son of the living God. It comes in the context of Jesus' proclamation of his deity. He says, I and the Father are one. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Peter may have said more than he comprehended, comprehended, but he got it right. You're the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. So put all that together and what do we have? Jesus is God's Messiah, the anointed one, not just anointed with oil, but anointed with the spirit of God. As the Messiah, he holds all three offices. He's the perfect prophet. Hebrews 10 talks about that. Let me read what it says. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets in many ways, many times. But in these last days, he has spoken through his son. The son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. 
No prophet like that before. Jesus is the son who is the prophet. John 1 says the same kind of thing. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, the Messiah, is the perfect prophet, the Son. He's also the perfect high priest. The book of Hebrews spends a long part of several chapters, actually, discussing things about Jesus' priesthood. Let me just read a little bit. We read in, in, in Hebrews, because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then, uh, then, uh, uh, and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their son, sins once for all when he offered himself. So we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We have a high priest who's nothing less than the son of the living God at the Father's right hand, interceding for us, pleading the blood that he shed for our forgiveness. And Jesus is also God's anointed king. The book of Ephesians explains, God raised him from the dead and seated him at, the right, at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, all power and dominion, every title that can be given. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything. So much so that we read in the book of Revelation, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever and ever. For you see, this Messiah, the Christ, is also the son of the living God who came to save the world. And what will that look like? What's his agenda? Well, we learn about it throughout the scriptures to cause the knowledge of God to cover the earth like the waters of the sea, to reconcile sinners to, to God, not counting their sins against them, to conform those that he reconciles to be like his own image, to conform them to his own image, to rid the world of sin, bringing the wicked to judgment, and finally to restore the earth, removing the curse and creating a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness prevails. In a, world, in a word, he's going to make everything new. For Jesus 
And only Jesus can save the world. Is that the Jesus you know? Is that the confession you would make concerning him? You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And is that your hope for the world? That only Jesus can save the world? Or is your faith in the political solution? Hoping to govern our way out of it. Or is your faith in a technological solution? Hoping to invent our way out of our trouble. If your hope is someone, somewhere else in some other solution, you need to check your heart to see if your faith is really in Jesus. Believing in some Jesus is not enough. So what Jesus do you believe in? The one in the Bible? Or the one who's an invention of men? It matters. For only Jesus can save the world. There's so many other claims being made. Mankind's endless hopes of solving the world's problems. But there is only one who is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and he alone is worthy of your hope and your trust. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we confess you. Confess the Lord Jesus quite blithely sometimes because the words are familiar to us. and Maybe we haven't thought about what it means and how all-encompassing it is. So, Lord, uh, we thank you when you bring us back to this truth and give us grace, Lord, to not just say the right words, but to believe with all of our heart that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that you alone can bring salvation, restoration to your creation. Thank you, Lord, for your truth. May it not slip away from our hearts and minds, but may we meditate on it day and night and be changed by what you said. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You'll find your bulletin, there's an affirmation of faith there. This is from the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, the version in modern English called the Plain English Westminster. It's about who Jesus is. Let's read it and make it our confession together. God chose his one and only son, Jesus, to be the mediator between him and us. And God has always had this plan, that Jesus would be our prophet our priest, and our king. God chose Jesus to be the head of the church and to save it. Jesus will inherit everything and judge the whole world. So we come to the Lord's table where that confession of who Jesus is and what he's done uh, becomes uh, very tangible to us. Because the biggest thing that he's done in regard to us is that he is, uh, excuse me, is that he has uh, given himself for our sins.